Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today on The Nose, yeah, we went to the movies. We saw Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a vehicle for Melissa McCarthy to show a different side of herself, uh, not strictly comic. Uh, It's a biographical story about a noted forger of literary memorabilia. Uh, We're all pretty enthusiastic about this movie, I think. I don't think there's going to be a good naysayer in the bunch. We'll also be talking about the obituary for the man who provided the voice of Hal, Uh, It's a much more complicated story than you might imagine. And also the emergence of Pete Davidson as, if not the star of SNL, the most talked about Saturday Night Live performer. And welcome to the Nose special, I Know I've Made Some Bad Decisions Lately edition. I Know I've Made Some Bad Decisions Lately is something that Hal says in the movie 2000, but it's also something that Pete Davidson uh, could have said recently, uh, he of Saturday Night Live. It's also definitely something that Lee Israel, the focus of the Melissa McCarthy film, Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, would have, could have maybe said, except that she didn't like to admit she'd done anything wrong. Maybe to a judge, she could say, I know I've made some bad decisions lately. So we're always looking for Papoulian through through lines, the things that tie our themes together. We actually have Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College, on the nose today, the creator of the Papoulian through line. Um, you know, we did a, a listener survey on SurveyMonkey, and somebody actually complained about Papoulian through lines. Oh, my god! They gosh. said it was too much of an insider term. Uh, Rand oh, Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal and writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Kate Russian is a poet uh, whose The Bridge Poem is featured in The Atlantic in a video project by the filmmaker Lucy Walker. This is the time where we uh, plug anything that needs to be plugged. I didn't get any plugs from anybody. I have to plug one thing, which is that uh, on Saturday night with the Avery Ensemble, uh, I will be the narrator of a a brand new work of music. You've probably heard me talk about this a a little bit over time. David McBride was a very distinguished uh, composer on the faculty of the Hart School, but well-known in the kind of avant-garde and not even just avant-garde um, compositional community uh, for, for orchestra, for, for chamber work, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, he wrote a work for symphony and spoken word years ago that I, I premiered with, uh, with his help. Uh, and I, for years afterwards, I would say, write something else. I would love to do something like that again. And he, he did. And then earlier this fall, he died in his sleep. Uh, we have decided that we are going to premiere the work anyway. Uh, the Avery Ensemble and I, uh, I can actually almost endorse it because we performed it for a small group uh, two days ago. Uh, so we've rehearsed it. We've, we'll rehearse it some more. And then Saturday night at 730, uh, no ticket, no charge. You can make a voluntary donation at St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, the Avery Ensemble, Ensemble will do a work by Rebecca Clark, a work by Ravel. And then we will premiere David McBride's We Are Making a New World for Piano Quartet and Narrator with some multimedia too. It's all about the armistice, all about World War One. 
lots of uh, musical craziness and lots of musical beauty. All right. So we have to move on here. Uh, let's begin uh, with Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson is sort of an odd figure on Saturday Night Live, as uh, critics have pointed out. He's not really good at sketch comedy. He doesn't really do any impersonations. He doesn't do the things that make Kate McKinnon, for example, kind of a superstar. Um, but somehow or other, he's emerged as the series' most notable protagonist lately, as much because of errors he has made as not. So uh, let's go right to that. Uh, he had, in fact, slighted or kind of made fun of a Republican candidate for Congress, uh, a man with an eye patch, uh, uh, an eye patch sustained as a result of injuries in war, uh, being actually in an explosion. Uh, and so the next week, after quite a firestorm on Twitter, Pete Davidson uh, apologized to the man in person and to the world. And what I'm sure was a huge shock for people who know me, I made a poor choice last week. <laughs> um, I, uh, no, nah, I did. Uh, I, made a, I made a joke about Lieutenant Commander Dan Crenshaw. Dan? Dan Crenshaw. And on behalf of the show and myself, uh, I apologize. Uh, my poor mom. Can you imagine being poor my mom? mom? Can you imagine being my mom? That must suck. <laughs> Can you imagine being Pete Davidson's mom? It can't be easy when everyone's mad at your son and roommate. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. It was a poor choice of words. Uh, the man is a war hero, and he deserves all the respect in the world. And if any good came of this, maybe it was that for one day, the left and the right finally came together to agree on something. That I'm a dick. <laughs> You think? (laughs) (laughs) Lieutenant Commander Dave Crenshaw, everyone, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for making a Republican look good. You gotta stop saying that, man. (laughs) He's been saying it all day. All right, so Rand, uh, so the big applause that you hear is this uh, Republican candidate and uh, uh, wounded war hero Dan Crenshaw sliding into the shot. Um, as you pointed out, I had the exact same reaction. This, th- we just have to pause and say this guy's comic chops on Saturday Night Live were probably sharper than any politician I've ever seen. There are a lot of politicians have come on that show. Right. Um, if you read a little bit into his background, you know, the guy has an interesting pedigree. He went to Tufts University. He has a, a, a master's degree from Harvard's Kennedy School. So you know, he's used to being around people who were facile and witty. I, I found this uh, this episode entertaining for one reason and heartening for another. Entertaining because uh, these two are are such emblematically opposite types of American males. Uh, on the one hand, you have the manly, decorous, orderly, <laughs> physically imposing yeah. war hero from Texas. On the other hand, you have a wiry, sarcastic, snarkily smart, obviously urban, probably Jewish, perpetual college student that is Davidson. They, they are oil and water as types. They are also avatars of of opposing politics. Um, and, and so you don't expect them to be able to get along. Now, this piece was obviously scripted, and now I'm moving into what was heartening to me mm-hmm. about it. But yet, it, it, the two were kind of, you got the feeling, winging it emotionally, even if it was scripted. And they were able to get themselves onto a ground, at least this viewer felt, where their feelings toward each other and how they would express them were not fixed, but, but rather fluid. And there was a fluidity to this encounter that, that I found heartening, 
in this moment where we've all become, and I certainly know I have, used to going around sort of shoving fixed opinions at other people. Um, I, and I, I had a conservative friend of mine say the other day, you know, the thing about liberals is that they have no sense of humor. I, I took great offense at that. But I, but I did feel that in my dealings with this person, I, I, I actually do lack a sense of humor because I'm just going around being aggrieved and outraged all the time. This, this was able to locate a moment where people weren't doing that when through a saving kind of humor – they were dealing with each other in a, in a fluid and, and, you know, rather lovely way. I, 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 I liked it a lot. Yeah, and there are, you know, Kate, there are sort of ways in which there are, there are the rules of comedy uh, begin to merge a little bit with uh, the rules of political combat. So some of the rules of comedy are, I think, that, you know, if you, you, if you as a comedian have taken a shot about somebody, at somebody, and maybe it hasn't gone over that well and you have to do something about it, that person gets to take a shot back at you. And there were some... I mean, this this thing, it didn't just consist of one or two little jabs. Uh, Pete Davidson celebratedly had this disastrously collapsed engagement to Ariana Grande. So while the congressman-elect is there uh, on the set, his phone goes off and his ringtone is an Ariana Grande <laughs> song. I mean, yeah. it kind of went on like that. There's a way that in which... That was a good one. Yeah. There's sort of a way in which people, you know, you sort of do your penance, uh, I guess. And maybe that's part of what Rand found heartening. I don't know. Yeah, I want to say thanks, Pete Davidson. Because I fear that uh, that the charming lieutenant will be around for a long time, in part because of this appearance on Saturday Night Live. And now, I th- now the liberals are mad at him. Yeah, and I, I, I think show. he might have – the lieutenant might have some of the same uh, retro opinions about immigration and the border as uh, some of the hardline Republicans have. And so I, I guess for me, you know, I enjoyed the humor of it. Uh, but then, you know, we're also still in the middle of uh, serious business here. Right. Although, I mean, is that a bad th- – I mean, look, I, I, my political opinion is probably pretty similar to yours. But there are going to be Republicans, and, <laughs> you know, and they're going to hold office and there's going to be a debate. This guy seems kind of – civil about the debate. He famously has put some distance between, as a lot of Republicans Republicans kind of do in a not that meaningful way, some distance between himself and the way that Trump acts and talks. He's not exactly a never Trumper, but he's like a not much of Trump or something, not much of a Trumper. I don't know. Is it terrible that you know a conservative comes on a show and, and, and is funny and, you know, I mean... Oh, I don't think it's terrible at all. I just hope that... Um the, the laughter doesn't uh, switch our brains off, that's all. Uh, but I, I actually felt worse when I heard um, Pete Davidson give his charming slacker uh, rendition of his relationship with Ariana Grande. And I'm, li- I'm listening, I'm looking, I'm saying, hmm, if I was the fiancé, how would I feel about this? I don't think I'd feel so great about this. And sure enough... Uh, their uh, their Hollywood New York uh, uh, f- uh, engagement ended a couple of days later. Yes, indeed. So, Irene, there's something about Pete Davidson, and it's kind of hard to put your finger on it because Saturday Night Live is, for the most play- part, a place with people who have finely tuned comic chops who are really good at sketch comedy, have come up through the ranks of the Upright Citizens Brigade or wherever, people with terrific impersonations. You kind of even wonder how Pete Davidson got through his audition. What did he do? Because 
his haplessness is kind of what engages us, but that's not a natural fit for SNL. His hap- uh, yeah, and um, I wondered that when I first saw him on there, but then I found out that his father died in 9-11, and he has this whole story about that, and that he struggles with mental illness, and I thought, when I heard that, I thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, and um, so that was when he first started, and now I think the idea that... Um, we read about in this article in Slate that he's kind of the perfect, um, you know, Generation Z or whatever that generation is called, the post-millennials. He's the perfect Saturday Night Live uh, character for them because of his, I mean, Rand called it his um, college, perpetual college student. Kate called it, per, uh, what did you say, a charming slacker quality of, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to lay it all out there. I'm just going to be who I am. I'm going to brand myself as just vulnerable and out there. Um, in a way that the other cast members don't do. We don't really know much about their lives, at least just somebody who that's, just watches the show. That's true. I, I, do, I do admire that he – I do see him as fearless mm. with what he will reveal and say about himself. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, of, whether it's, it's fearless or not, though, I don't know if it's – I don't – you know, in a way it's, it's self-branding. Is that fearless? Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's like willingness to expose oneself. Is that fearless? I'm, well, also, I mean, in a way it's kind of all he's got, right? I mean, I think he's very funny, but – but he's only very funny in that way. So, Rand, I'm going to get you to make a, a slight a distinction because he, you uh, invoked, uh, I know, one of your uh, cherished German term, that idea of the perpetual student, except that <laughs> Davidson is kind of almost a perpetual non-student in a way. You know, the, the, those German guys that you've talked about in the past who just are at university forever, never <laughs> completing their work, you feel like they're doing some kind of work. It's Davidson, I feel like, is a guy who just would never go to class and that's kind of, he's, he has kind of rejected rejected most of the indices of success. So I'm, I'm not a regular watcher of the show, so I'm not that familiar with him. I've seen him a, a couple of times. But, you know, I, I, was, I was following a little bit of the Beto O'Rourke uh, campaign and um, was interested in him as a character and, and thinking about some of the overlap he has, Beto O'Rourke has with Barack Obama in terms of, you know, being a really smart college student who's a little bit of an outsider and a sort of an observer and after graduation has vaguely artsy notion, maybe wants to create stories, gravitates to an urban environment and, and you know, and then you're not sure what the next few years are about. So there's that that part of being the, the Aviga student, the, the eternal student is – you know, ha- allotting yourself and allowing yourself an extended period where, well, you're not necessarily doing really anything that's clearly identifiable. Bernie Sanders did that for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as a political as – a, as a type that, you know, might become a, a future politician, that's a very agreeable uh, CV from the kind of artsy liberal point of view and a clearly disagreeable one from the point of view of people who are going to sit there loving Dan Crenshaw. And that was part of that, you know, that that extreme slackerness coming but, side by side with, you know, a, a guy who already, you know, was going to the Kennedy School and, and had his the military component of his future career figured out when he was an undergraduate at Tufts. Yeah. But at the same time, the guy's on Saturday Night Live. And so I think for those, for that, for people of that generation, that's a pretty high mark of success. Right. So it's kind of like, the the combination of the slacker, yeah, they're, they're like the Navy SEALs of the slacker, yes, exactly. of the slacker so, and and they all know that too, <laughs> right. and so that's part of it. It's like uh-huh. I'm I'm really successful, but I'm going to act that. So in he's some like way. the slacker slack. He's like the the, the champion slacker slacker. He's like the 2018 slacker. You know, well, yeah. because people don't admire the, the people that slacker. age, right? Because people that age don't really admire, at least in my experience of them. 
they don't really admire slacker slackers in the way that, you know, baby boomers used to. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we would appreciate somebody who just, you know, wanted to read all day and have a good time and talk. And, and do nothing. Yeah, and do nothing, whereas that isn't there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting. I just have to say that the Pete Davidson has this um, recurring role of, as the pool boy. <laughs> and there's this like when, when, you know, what's her name from Elaine from Seinfeld. Julia uh, Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah, she was on and she plays this woman. She's she you know, in the house, and she's like, "Oh my God, we have to end this relationship. It's horrible. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's. I have a family. I have children. You know, this isn't going to work." And she goes through this whole thing because she's having a relationship with him, the pool boy, and he just his rea- he just kind of stares at her after she, she says all this and says. Okay, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it's like it, okay, and then he goes out and starts working on the pool again. No big deal, you know. And so that just encapsulates something. And he's just so I just laughed at so well, there's hard. There's a when great I essay by that. Tim Kreider, K R E I D E R, called "The Busy Trap," uh, and and it's his broadside in favor of the cultural importance of doing nothing and and how we've 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 lost it. Well, the the other thing, though, is, Kate, there's a way in which – so Saturday Night Live's relevance to the American cultural debate kind of waxes and wanes. But really over the last three or four years, because I think of a concatenation of factors, it's really become front and center again. Partly it became front and center as just a vehicle for the critique of Donald Trump and for everything that happened uh, running up to the 2016 election and then after. But also because, you know, there's some really pretty amazing stars on it right now. Uh, Kate McKinnon really – I interviewed – Richard Plepler, the CEO of HBO, um, a couple of nights ago, and he said that he has he said to Lauren Michaels, Kate McKinnon can do anything she wants. Uh, just bring something to me. It'll be you know I, I want to have her on HBO. Uh, Cecily Strong uh, is now in a Triscuit commercial, which is kind of an amazing thing for a Saturday Night Live player to do because so many of their co- bits are fake commercials that look mm-hmm. like real commercials. You'd be very hesitant to put one of them in an actual commercial because everybody watching it would be waiting for the joke. She's um, so funny. Why is she? Why isn't she doing? Better stuff than Triscuit commercials, I wonder. Maybe you get a lot of money for those. Yeah, I bet you do. Right. <laughs> Keenan Thompson has kind of emerged as this sort of jack of all trades. He's been there forever. But I mean, Saturday Night Live is, I, I don't know, one of the articles we read it said it's, you know, uh, it's your grandfather's or your grandmother's favorite comedy show. But come watch this guy, Pete Davidson, who you as a Generation Z person can identify with. But I don't know. SNL has kind of gotten itself back into the front of the conversation a little bit. Yeah, and I think they've done that a lot through um, Weekend Update. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really tune in a lot for that, and Cicely Strong is just heartbreakingly hysterical. Yeah. As, uh, as Melania, the, as the uh, well, I'm thinking about the addict, uh, Alice Ann or Lou oh, Ann on Weekend yeah. Update, and she's <laughs> yeah. always uh, flirting with with Colin and and holding forth in her through her through the through her adult mind. Um, and that's really where Pete Davidson gets to shine too. He comes on usually as Pete Davidson on Weekend Update and just gets to be himself instead of a sketch character. All right, I'm getting the um, the notice that we should uh, switch topics. So I don't. I think most of us really probably uh, most people in the know is probably understand how great New York Times obituaries are, and we've done an entire show about this. So I was reading one this week, and it was the uh, um, an obituary of the man who had uh, incarnated. No, that's the wrong word. He's the man who provided uh, the the voice of Hal in 2001, a Canadian actor uh, who's who I had personally never heard of before. Um, and it, like most obits, Rand, it had all kinds of terrific stuff, including 
including that he never saw the movie because yeah. <laughs> he didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he how did went, he even know he didn't like it? <laughs> well, he didn't like the process. He didn't like he, the process yeah. that he went through. Wouldn't uh, you, how could he not have seen it? I think he I, maybe felt disrespected. Yeah. Who did they have lined up? They had Martin Balsam. I was thinking Ernest Borden and Martin Balsam. Was going to do that voice, which would have been, you know, really terrible. Right, and they they also tried a few British actors, at least maybe queuing, you know. But ultimately, uh, and I think we should all maybe just uh, in an auditory way revisit this voice for a second. Uh, ultimately, they decided on this. Oh, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. So, you know, Rin, there's actually, I, I was watching this. I watched this particular clip a few times today. Um, and actually what happens right after that, right after that, there's pre- a pretty long take where the actor Keir DeLay kind of registers the fact that he's talking to someone who has no human pathways, you know, that basically Hal has made his decision right now. And, you know, although you might try to you know, call upon the mercy or prevail upon uh, a different set of instincts of somebody that you were talking to uh, just on, through some act of human negotiation. That can't happen. And that's some of the brilliance of Hal, right? That, you know, and maybe that voice, by the way, the voice belongs to Douglas Rain, uh, a Canadian Shakespearean actor who died at 90. I don't know. Just give me your... Well, first of all, I'm guessing one of the reasons he didn't watch this film. And his... his uh, contribution to the film was completed in in a little over a day. He did these lines. We all know uh, these cases of actors who, after a long and, and hardworking and, uh, career full of under-attended to glories, end up being known for this one thing. If you look at <laughs> Douglas Raines' obituary, you see a picture of him as Henry IV. He, he was a great Shakespearean actor. And so to spend 50 years doing that and be known for a day and a half of work in this movie is was probably pretty galling. And he wasn't I, even I, in it. It was just his voice. I, yeah. I, I'm a great fan of Law & Order and I love Jerry Orbach, the actor. And anyone who knows Jerry Orbach knows him as, as Detective Lenny Briscoe. But Jerry Orbach had a decades-long career as a Broadway musical comedy guy. Oh, um, who, who was Who was originated the role of El Gallo in The Fantastics. So, or, or it's like, you know, when I was a kid, the only thing we knew about Orson Welles is, oh, yeah, he's the Paul Masson wine guy. <laughs> so, you know, th- there's that. I think we have to remember this film came out in 1968 and a half century of, of worrying about artificial intelligence and where it's going have, have gone by since then. And it's hard to unearth the still relative freshness of that 
of that fear at, at, at that time. You know, we're all still sort of waiting for the singularity and, and the development of general artificial intelligence, which, which continues onward. You, you can't go a week without nowadays, without a great article, you know, New York Times, New York Review books about, about what's happening now. But to, to create that particular voice, and we just heard it. I mean, the, the genius of that was to, was to get the combination of, of qualities into that voice. It was both sort of soothing and, and calming, but also deeply threatening and, and coy uh, and, and, and snarky um, and insinuating. So it was, it was a brilliant concoction of qualities to attribute to the forces that we've created that are then going to take over. So right, they're, and they're emotionless. Torp, you know, and emotionless. They, yeah, like they're just sort of like – It's the it, official it's, voice, but it's also sadistically tormenting us. And in control. Yeah. In control. I, I watched that scene again too. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. And when you see this Keir DeLay's face and you see – the realization of what's going on dawning on his face and he's trying yes. not to panic. And then, you know, in houses, he says, I'm going to come in through whatever and houses, but you have no helmet, Dave. <laughs> and, he, and then he showed the shot of the helmet. He's left his helmet in the main space. Yeah. It was, it's a terrific, terrific uh, piece of filmmaking. Well, the other thing that's brilliant about it too, and I just, I don't think I'd ever really registered this, is that after – uh, Dave Bowman gets the upper hand. Um, Hal does begin to bargain with Dave Bowman just the way you would with a human being. So Hal says – he does say, I know I've made some bad decisions lately. I'm still very committed to the m- mission. He starts bringing up things that he thinks maybe a human being would react to very well. And, and so there is a way in which everything shifts at that moment. You know, The machine is trying to be human enough to prevail upon the mercies uh, of a human being, which is – but I mean – I don't know. I find most people on the nose are kind of technophobic. I think this might be a pretty technophobic trio right here. But no, I'm well. Do you have I'm, Siri? I, do you have Siri on your phone? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So Siri, <laughs> what is she other than Hal's granddaughter? Yeah, but she seems nicer. She's so much nicer, you know. But I would also. Why does she say, seem nicer? I, I, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, she she says, uh, you know, I guess because she she always asks, you know, like, may I do this or I, here I found some things for you. You know, Hal would never say that. Well, Hal was pretty helpful. Well, I guess he would. But there's something about the way she says it. Maybe it's just gender in general. But also, I um, I did marry a computer scientist, and who was into artif- who was involved in artificial intelligence. So it's it's just fascinating how how now they actually are. I mean, I'm talking. You know, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but they actually are um, programming. There are way, more and more ways to program computers to think for themselves. You know, it's not just repeating like it was in 1968. Anything that a human would have would have programmed it to do. You know, they can actually have much more autonomy and sort of. Th- a student of mine is writing a paper right now called "Can Computers Ever Be Moral?" You know, mm-hmm. and how that works, and sort of exploring that from from a scientific point of view. You know, so it's it's. It's 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 so it was freaky then, but it's even freakier now. I think to think about a computer being manipulative in the way that Hal was. Well, we keep putting off uh, from from what I read in this topic. We keep putting off the date at which um, it's going to be at least a computer and, 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 and AI scientists foresee a time when 
computers are actually going to perhaps be be like Hal. And now the latest data I read is 2047. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, you know, so, so it was obviously brilliant to capture. We, we have artificial intelligence. We encounter it every day in our lives. But it's not yet Hal-like. And the difference between Hal and Siri, their voice has the same tonality. And I think we read that that they that well yeah, yeah I mean she, the same she, this the same sort of sort of not exactly human kind of humanness to it right I mean well I think that's why I'm I'm still with uh, Julie on Amtrak because Julie <laughs> on Amtrak friendly. she's always there she's always friendly always Hi, helpful I'm Julie <laughs> yeah never let me down I, I think I mean I think there's no question that a lot of um, sort of uh, technically inclined and scientifically inclined people, as young people watched 2001, uh, went into that field, uh, were influenced by it. And, and there's just – it's no uh, accident that all these kind of quasi-AI personal helpers are Alexa and Sierra. They have names. They have names, you know, just the way Hal did and they speak in a pretty uninflected inflected way. Although you know you can change Siri. Uh, my Siri is now an Australian guy. Uh, you can oh. you can change Siri's voice. Why, why uh, did you pick him? I just got tired of Siri. Uh, I wanted something else. Come on, it's your old crocodile Dundee and this. I, yeah. I use uh, I used a British woman's voice on my uh, GPS. Mm-hmm. But you know now they've developed these AIs that are going to be companions for uh, older people who live alone. Right, and where the where the oh, person can you get a voice that's ungrammatical and has speech particles and clears not its throat? On, not on your Pete iPhone. Davidson, okay, Pete I'm getting Davidson the I, I'm voice. getting the gotta break uh, thing. So we got to take a break. We'll be back. We have to have time to talk about this movie we saw. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy. All right, we went to the movies this week to see uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, This is based on the real story of a writer named Lee Israel, who, when her book writing career uh, was thwarted, uh, turned to forging literary memorabilia. So let's hear a little bit from the movie. Melissa McCarthy is an unusually serious Although kind of, you know, mordant uh, role, uh, you hear her here with the other sort of major figure in the movie, Jack Hawk, played by Richard E. Grant. Uh, Jack Hawk is a um, – it's hard to say what he is because it's difficult to – well, he's selling drugs and, uh, and uh, living the low life uh, on the Upper West Side of New York. Going through Lee Israel. It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with, um, Julia Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused those two. That's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. I've just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh, teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. Did I buy you a drink? Even though you're the posh writer. Thank you. Craigie, yeah. top her up. All right. So uh, we, we meet the, these two. 
Um, First of all, Kate, I think one thing that maybe we should just start out uh, saying is I think we're all kind of hungry for a movie that's a has a little bit more grown-up content to it. You know, that this movie uh, and to have it have a major box office star like Melissa McCarthy means that you could go to the multiplex and, and just see a movie like this one. Yeah, it was great to see uh, Melissa Car- McCarthy in this role. Uh, speaking of Saturday Night Live, of course, everybody knows she was terrific <laughs> as uh, Sean Spicer. A uh, Ghostbusters, not so much uh, as a movie, I thought, but so it was, it was really great to see her, um, you know, in a dramatic role. I heard an interview with her, and she was talking about her her experience and her training, and um, I was thinking about the fact that, of course, she did not probably set out to play all of these comedic roles especially roles where sometimes the the visual gag is is the 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 fact that she that she is a, a larger person uh and that's something about um the characters that she's she's done before that I've always been slightly um uncomfortable with where they've played on her weight as the, as a sight gag so it was it was really great to see her uh, in this character study um, with Richard E. Grant, who I did not know um, before this. Well, get used to him. I mean, he's actually been around for a long time and came onto the scene with a movie called With Nail and I many years ago. Uh, but he will now be uh, in the concluding episode of the uh, nine movie Star Wars arc. He has some kind of fairly significant role uh, in Star Wars 9. Um, but uh, and, and this will only allow him to grow. So, Rand, I think you and I had very similar reactions to this movie, and it does so many things so well. So you pick which one you want to talk about. I, I really love this movie. I think I liked it maybe a little a little bit more than, than some people in our group did. Um, The first thought I had about it was it seemed in some ways like a Woody Allen movie. Uh, If he were still making movies that had a core of strange vitality to them, the the soundtrack includes um, any one any number of nostalgic ballads. Um, Blossom Deary saw Manhattan. We may have heard of that tiny bit bit of background there. there. Um, uh, Peggy Lee, uh, Dream Street, uh, Street of Dreams. Um, Dinah Washington is there. But instead of just putting forth then a kind of ultimately empty nostalgia that is clued by that almost tick of romanticism that Woody Allen has now applied again and again to Manhattan, it takes that essentially dreamy and nostalgic texture and then puts up against it a whole bunch of very abrasive stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she, it's, it's a great film about failure and the, and the desperation that comes out of failure. It's set in the 90s. Colin, you had, some great, you had a great comment about what the 90s meant for, for writers. The 90s also was a time when in Manhattan we began to see, you know, this this enormous and ever-growing gap between people who, who have made it and who haven't, who have money and who, who don't. And publishing was kind of breaking down in, in the same way. And, and she's, she's a failed writer who resorts to plagiarism, <laughs> to forgery, really, um, through, through desperation. So, and her character is, is abrasive and tough and hates kids. And, and, so, and so you have this, this really, really very well-worked tension between certain themes of kind of n- nostalgia and romance and other themes of sort of other, other, other terms of, of tough, 
obdurate uh, uh, character and that works well together. The, the friendship between the two of them I thought it was just brilliantly portrayed. By the way, Richard E. Grant, you've seen him in a million movies actually. Mm. He's been in Gosford Park. He's yep. in The Player. He's been in a lot of different movies. He's, he, was like, he looks a little bit like Christopher Walken and I thought of him as a Christopher Walken again with a big injection of, of joie de vivre and he plays the role of this swashbuckling gay man just so, you know, so winningly. Yeah, he's also in Game of Thrones, in which he's wonderful. I wanted to just stay, Irene, for that with that Woody Allen thing for a second because I had the exact same reaction that this there's a way that Woody Allen uses New York and mythologizes it and makes it part of his self mythologizing too. So you get these soaring shots of the New York uh, skyline with this sweeping Gershwin mu- music welling up behind it, and this this New York. It's, it's no less New Yorky, but it's a place where people are lonely, where they live in kind of dingy apartments instead of the fabulous Mia Farrow apartment and Hannah and her sisters. You know, where, where it's a city that doesn't really care that much whether you live or die, which is I don't think how Woody Allen sees New York. I agree. And I, I, since I lived in New York at the time that, um, you know, 1990, 1990 was it? Yeah. Um, that the movie took place. And I, and I think that is much truer to to New York, you know, for as it was then. There were, I mean, there are just so many people. You can't generalize about like what New York was at that time, but yeah, it was, it was, but it was that sort of, yeah, you're just going to do what you're going to do. Um, and, and I want to say that, um, yeah, so, and, and also her apartment, that seemed very true to the time, you know, like for now, that apartment probably costs like, Oh, Three thousand yeah. <laughs> a month or whatever, but then you could get an apartment like that for a few hundred dollars a month, you know. And so it seemed, you know, it, it just did seem very true. And the way she had furnished it, and the typewriters, and then she turned, then she, you know, the transition to computers, and the computer looked so funny because it was so big, and um, all that seemed realistic in a in a in a really wonderful way to New York, right? She wasn't. It wasn't so much the city in terms of. I mean, the party she went to was so great, too, because that just was so familiar, just that way that party was. Anyway, um, but I think and, and so I agree with a lot of what Rand said. And I think I, I would recommend the movie a lot. I think it's interesting. But I think the character, that crusty character who's incapable of uh, intimacy for the most part, is so I find so fascinating. And so I sort of felt somewhat disappointing because because I wanted to. I wanted the movie to explain that character to me more than it did. I think she did a good job of sort of demonstrating it, but I felt like, oh, I want more of how did you get this way? You know, let's hear more about this. You know, we had that conversation, uh, my significant other and I, on the way out of the movie, and I – I thought I don't need to know the psychic wound. I, I, like, I know this person. This person is a close cousin of Dustin Hoffman's character in Tootsie, uh, the person who has his or her own set of aesthetic standards that he or she will not compromise, will not play the game, will not make nice. We kind of know that person. You know, Kate, if there was one tiny little thing that disappointed me about this movie, uh, it's, there's a fascinating relationship that is depicted growing up between Lee Israel and this character played by Dolly Wells, Anna, I think her name is, who uh, – who owns uh, the kind of bookstore where you could maybe sell some literary memorabilia. Um, and in fact, do we, we have a clip of that. We have a little clip that has Anna in it, don't we, Mr. Pants? Uh, let's just play that. Wasn't this uh, one line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. I can't carry it off. You certainly can. 
doesn't help too much in the relationship department. I'm sure that's not true. Okay, should we settle up? Yeah. I know. Cash. <laughs> This has my number, well, the number of the store. If you're ever in the neighborhood and, you know, want to get a drink or a coffee sometime. Sounds good. I'd like that. So, uh, you know, we see a couple of stabs uh, that she makes at intimacy, uh, Kate. Uh, one of them is with Anna Devere Smith, who kind of shows up near the end of the movie as her her ex-partner, I, we are led to assume. Uh, and But this, this relationship developing with this kind of fragile, vulnerable character of this bookstore owner um, is really set out for us in a very intriguing way. I kind of felt like the movie sort of dropped that at a certain point because there's there's horrible betrayal that we're watching unfold. She is selling this nice woman. I kept thinking this woman's going to lose her bookstore. She's going to owe money to so many people who have bought forgeries from this person she thinks is her friend, uh, thinks of as a friend. Yeah, you know when um, when Lee and uh, Anna finally make it out to dinner, and Anna lets Lee know signals Lee that she's interested in some kind of friendship and Lee is totally unable to deal with it and says exactly the right things to put her off and refrains from um, uh, enthusiastically telling Anna that, sure, I'll read your story. She says, oh, if I get around to it. And uh, Anna is, is is puzzled and that's dropped uh, I think it's explained somewhat in shorthand in the scene with the cameo with Anna Devere Smith as the weary ex. And she's heard it all. She's seen it all. And she knows that um, Lee is so self-absorbed that she's only calling her because she's she needs her. She needs something for her. and And Anna... Uh, Anna Devere Smith as the ex is just not having it and walks away. And I guess the way I saw that scene uh, working is as a stand-in for all of the other friends and lovers that she let down Mm. and that she um, betrayed out of her own self-absorption. You know, Rand, we're running low on time here, but I do think we should say something about the way that this is uh, very much a movie about literary people, about people who want to be literary people, about a world in which literature the, 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 and the memorabilia of people like Dorothy Parker and Noel Coward is worth collecting. But it's a world that's no longer really being lived in. Well, what was fascinating to me about that, of course, people are still collecting a lot of things. But what's great about the way this film works is it follows – it takes her through – really humiliations of, of failure when her career just implodes, her agent is, is essentially humiliating her to her face. And part of her problem is that she has discovered no self as a writer. She's always going to write about a book herself, but for all the reasons that 
Kate just brought up, the self is not accessible. It's not there. She's not going to be able to write it. So by happenstance, she comes across a letter, uh, a writer's letter. She sees that she can not only forge signatures effectively, but she can write letters in the style of, of different writers and produce them totally credibly in this chameleon-like way. And what's fascinating is that while she knows she's doing something unethical and, in fact, illegal, in fact, the law is closing in on her, she also prides herself on her ability to do this. And it is a kind of triumph of close reading. She says at one point, I'm a better Dorothy Parker than Dorothy Parker was. Well, there are very few people these days who read enough and read closely enough to be able to recognize small peculiarities of writer's style and be able to you know, to, to duplicate them. Forgery, I mean, they say mimicry is the greatest imitation. Well, if that's true, then forgery is adulation. And there is a kind of backhanded or roundabout artistic triumph that goes along, whether it's in painting or in writing, with the ability to forge at this level. And she becomes euphoric about something that is, at its base, completely unethical and illegal. And that's a fat one of several fascinating paradoxes in this movie. Right. We have to stop there, uh, so we'll have time to make some recommendations on the other side. But the movie is can you ever forgive me? I think we all think you should go see this movie. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants. I'm trying to be Hal, but it's not working. Uh, so Kayo's not here to do the thank yous. That means that Jonathan McPants is not only producing the show but running the board. I'm sure Betsy Kaplan is racing around doing something. Carlos uh, Mejia is our digital guru. Uh, and the part of Bill Curry was played by – who should play the part of, uh, of Bill Curry? Pete Davidson, I think, should play the part yeah. of Bill Curry today. Uh, we'll be back on Monday. We're going to uh, devote some time to uh, some gun-related issues, particularly the medical community's current response to the crisis uh, in gun violence. All right. We have only six minutes to do all of our recommendations, so uh, make haste, but not too much haste. Uh, Irene, uh, get us started. Um I just sort of at random found this book, this novel in a in a bookstore, and Zadie Smith liked it, and she had a blurb, so I bought it. And it's called Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Maybe other other people read it because it came out last spring, but it's a really it's it's a sort of a page turner, and it's fun, and it's not like a great novel, but it's really it, I recommend it if you just want a novel to hang out with under a comforter in the cold. Um, it's called Asymmetry. A somewhat lukewarm recommendation. <laughs> not that great, but... Yeah. All right. Uh, Kate, what have you got for us? All right. Well, I do not like to shop, and going to the mall is not my idea of fun. So I go to consignment shops, and I'm always in search of the next great consignment shop. And when my place in Mystic closed up, I found another one. It's called Melanie's Glorious Treasures. Hmm. And it is in Glastonbury on New London Turnpike near Whole Foods. And it has great name brand, good quality women's clothes and accessories and other things. And most importantly, it does not smell like dust. (laughs) And I found out the last time I was there that the owner, uh, Melanie Cowie, is someone – I actually met in a United Way committee at Wesleyan 20 years ago. 
And so it just all made sense to me. So that's Melanie's Glorious Treasures Consignment Boutique in Glastonbury. Great endorsement. Presumably you cannot uh, buy signed uh, letters by Catherine Hepburn there. Well, like that. Maybe. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe you can. All right. Well, uh, inspect the dice, obviously. Uh, Rand, what I'm, have you got I'm going to make your whole day and evening with a book, a dinner, and a movie. Dinner would be at Song Restaurant in West oh, Hartford God, Center. It's yes. a new Chinese dim sum place. It's owned yes. by the people who have Shu down on New Britain Avenue. Yeah. It is great. Song in West Hartford. Where is it? It's on LaSalle. It's, oh, I mean, I how many restaurants can you cram into West Hartford Center? Webster Bank. So it okay. is right next to Brico. Uh, the movie would be Wildlife, which is an adaptation of a Richard Ford novel starring Carey Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm. And like the film we discussed today, it's a film about failure. It's set in, the, in Montana. It's a really beautiful and well-acted movie. Say the name again. It is called Wildlife. Okay. And so it's at Cin- Cinema City now. One word, okay. Wildlife. And then, and then the books, actually two books. I want to recommend uh, really any books, but especially two by Nicholson Baker. He's really absolutely one of the most interesting and enig- enigmatic, talented, and brilliant writers of his generation. He's coming to Hartford, and he's going to be on this show, I believe. Yes, he is. And November 30th, he's going to be giving a talk at the Mark Twain House. But I'm going to recommend as an introduction to him his two first novels. They're very slim. The one is called Room Temperature, and the other is called The Mezzanine. He's a sort of fascinating miniaturist. He takes very small small realities and very small time frames and then draws them out and uses them as a vehicle for all sorts of manic digressiveness. There's really no other writer like Nicholson Baker. He's, he's great. I totally I, – I endorse your endorsement. Mezzanine yeah. is uh, – I, I, I think it was like a game changer in a lot of ways. I've never read a book like that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, I think for a lot of writers, it thrust a whole bunch of new challenges uh, in our faces. So, yeah, I'll endorse right along with that. So uh, I'm going to do – guess do one very uh, general endorsement and then a more specific one. My general endorsement is we were looking for a way to maybe somehow or other celebrate uh, the life and legacy of Stan Lee. Uh, this is the week that, that he died. Uh, we couldn't really think of a way to do this. But I do think that um, understanding Stanley, however you want to go at it. I was trying to figure out, is there a thing that – like even just a, a compendium of early Marvel comics. I couldn't really find that. If anybody ha- – I'll ask you to in- recommend something to me. If anybody can figure out like, like a great entry-level thing because you really almost need to understand Stan Lee to understand modern popular culture. I mean he absolutely uh, has set the tone for it in, in a way that almost nobody else I can think of has. And then uh, a little bit more pointed at the movie we just discussed and, and actually the segue music out of the last uh, segment, uh, which was Can't Run But by Paul Simon. Um, that's a song that kind of appears actually twice in, in the movie that we, we, were, we were just discussing. Can you ever forgive me? He also – and so here's the – connective thread. So the movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, features Jane Curtin uh, from the original Saturday Night Live cast as a not particularly nurturing agent. Uh, and, and then this uh, music by Simon. Simon recently uh, showed off his repurposed version of that song uh, on Saturday Night Live. It's part of an album of his called In the Blue Light, where he's taken not particularly famous songs of his for the most part and redone them in interesting ways. He does that one with a kind of uh, edgy string quartet. Uh, or something along those lines anyway. And so some of the remakes are great. Uh, You can probably get them on a streaming service and figure out which ones uh, you like. That's a really good remake of what was already a pretty terrific song. All right. Thanks so much to Rand Richards Cooper uh, and to uh, Irene Popoulos and, of course, to Kate Russian. And we're going to be back on Monday if I can piece my brain back together. Vernon, I would have said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. 